This is a free download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building at LeBanks St. Sampson's in the Channel Island of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. Funnily enough, we were ministering here with John and Ange and got a call to go for an uh, interview to Chelmsford, to a church there, and we left the island eight years in March. Now, you can't believe the time has flown that way so quickly. Um, we're only there two and a half years in Chelmsford, and we got another call. I don't answer the, the phone anymore, I tell you, because I, I keep moving. But they asked me to go then to Kilstyth in Scotland, uh, which we then did, and um, we had little bit of a tough time to be frank you know um, I like to tell the truth for about three years uh, dealing with various <clears throat> things that were happening there in the church and and then God began to really bless um, and last year was a great year we started to see people save people baptized where all things were going on we thought though this year is going to be fantastic I couldn't wait for this year to start and then come January um, of course three weeks in uh, Bev was diagnosed with breast cancer and, but the church during this period uh, has been absolutely phenomenal. They've really supported us, made us meals, done our ironing and all that kind of stuff, which is great because uh, Bev had a pretty tough time. But I'll let her tell her, her part of the story. But she's been incredible this year. Um, never once, not even for one moment, have I seen her down or discouraged or saying anything negative about her condition. She's always carried on positive. And just even in the times when she was really wrecked after the chemo, you know, she just carried on being positive and praising God. So you can tell a bit of your story. I could keep you here morning, but I won't. But I think one thing I learned is, you know, when you go through something like this, you really find out if you believe what you really believe. And I found out I did believe what I believed. But more than that, I found out that what I believe is actually true that God is faithful. He does answer his prayers. He will never leave you. And yeah, it's been a pretty rough eight months. I'm not going to say it was pleasant. It wasn't at all. But I've had a peace right from when I was diagnosed and I was determined this wasn't going to beat me. I was going to be beat it. The devil was not going to bring us down. And as Mike said, the church had just come to a place when we were really being blessed. And I was like, no devil, you're not. This isn't going to bring you down. And so we've sort of kept on through, and I just really have felt God's presence. And for you guys who've been praying for us and people, you know, this is when you find out you're really part of a big family of God. And there's been people, well, from all over the world, messaging me, sending me cards, flowers. And that's when you realize how big and how great it is to be in a family of God. So I would just encourage you, God is faithful. And yes, you know, we're talking about going through the storms and things like that. Yes, you will go through storms. We're not immune. You know, my daughter said to me, why you, mom? You've been serving God for years and all this. But I said, why not me? We're not immune. We're still human. We're still living in this world. We are still subject to the things, you know, of this world. But we have God on our side and he will bring us through. And I have just really felt the, um, 
the power of his presence and also the power of people's prayers. So for those of you who have known us and have been praying for us, I just really want to thank you. But really, I just give praise to God because he is faithful and he has been with us um, through this time. So it's great to be with you and uh, bless you. Amen. Amen. That was, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was fantastic. Okay, if you've got Bibles with you, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. I'm just changing. And then verse 5. So I've been thinking, and I said last week, and as uh, Angie touched on, actually, didn't quite know I was speaking, but I want to just sort of carry on this thought about, about strongholds. And in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, uh, I'll recap for those who weren't there last week, uh, but I'll just, just get the kind of the foundational thought, if you like. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. You're happy today, you're good. Okay, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. It says, Casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the, to the obedience of Christ and, bring, and being ready to, pers- to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's think about this word, strongholds. And we said that... Uh, Strongholds are habitual lies, really, that embrace us at the core of our being. And that's just odd thoughts. It's a system, it's a way of thinking that, that, that affects everything we do, our decisions, our responses to life. And basically, these strongholds are powerful things that, control, that can have control over, over a person's life. And I think I looked at last week where there was three ways that how a stronghold is actually kind of brought into being. I said the first thing is, it comes through a suggested thought, a suggestion. The enemy will put a suggestion into your mind. How many of you realise that? Just a thought, a suggestion. Now, when you receive that thought, that suggestion, from a suggestion, then you find a multiplication of thoughts come. Have you found that? There's a thought of fear come and... And you begin to dwell on it and you think on it. And before you know what, another thought comes to fear, another thought, and that situation, that circumstance. And almost you're flooded with all these kind of multiplication of thoughts. And that thought, when it's received and accepted, it goes from the mind, and Jesus speaks about it, that that you think in your heart, it goes into the heart. It goes into your emotions, it goes into your being. And it becomes from a Suggested thought, it becomes a mindset. So from suggestion, it becomes a mindset. That becomes a pattern of thinking that becomes established in your mind. Something that influences the way you respond in life. It becomes a mindset. And from a mindset, from that it becomes a stronghold. So what began a thought now becomes a way of life. You don't just think it, you live it. You live out the thought. You live out the fear. 
You live out the inferiority. You live out the insecurity. It becomes a, a kind of way of life. And a fortress, if you like, a stronghold, is it protects that way of thinking. In other words, that the moment that thought is challenged, you have an excuse of why you do what you do. It's, it's, a, it's an immediate a protection that protects you from dealing with that particular way of thinking. Because now it's a fortress. You protect it by the excuses that they... You have an excuse of the fear. You have an excuse for the inferiority. You have an excuse for the various issues that are, are in the life because of the stronghold that's been formed. This stronghold, this way of thinking. And really we looked at four ways the strongholds are brought down. They're brought down firstly by identity. We first of all have to identify where the wrong way of thinking is. We identify it. We recognise it. We say, actually, I recognise that I have been believing a lie from the enemy. And I identify that as a wrong way of thinking. I identify it as a lie. The second thing I need to do is I renounce the lie. I recognise it and I renounce that lie. I say, I renounce that lie and I believe the truth of God's word. So I have to secondly renounce the lie. Not just put up a, but renounce and say, that is a lie and I renounce it and I refuse to allow that to have any part of my life. The third thing I do is forgive. Because sometimes strongholds are formed because of what people have done to us. Hurtful words they may have spoken to us. All kinds of betrayals. Things in life, rejection, all kinds of things in life that have hurt us. That have enabled us to think a certain way because of things, issues that have, have hit our lives. So we then have to sort of forgive the people that have hurt us, that, that have said those words. Our parents maybe that have said wrong things into our life. And so we need to kind of forgive. And I said the fourth thing is that we need to exchange. So, for example, a stronghold of stinginess. You know, that's a stronghold. The people are stingy, you know what I mean? That sense of you're afraid to give and afraid to bless. It's like a stinginess in way of thinking. So the way I bring down a stinginess of thinking is I exchange it by being generous. If I have a stronghold of unbelief, I exchange it by having... A, by, by having faith. So whatever the issue is, and as I begin to uh, renounce those things, begin to forgive, then I also begin to, begin to adapt a, a contrary lifestyle to what I've been living. I have a, a, a completely wrong way. I, I, I change the way I think. In fact, the word repent means to change the way that you think, to turn right around and say, I'm not thinking that way again. I'm turning away from it. It's rather like this. That's the best way I describe it. And I think this is the issue that when Jesus comes into your life, how many realise he doesn't come as a guest? You see, if a guest came into your house, a guest wouldn't rearrange your house. Is that right? You know, can you imagine someone came into your house and you just invite them in for a cup of tea and next thing you know they're changing the furniture and say, I don't like that there and I'll change that. That shouldn't be there. And the next thing you know your whole house has been re rechanged by someone who's just a guest. How many, how many know that guest wouldn't remain very long in your house? Is that true? So Jesus doesn't come as a guest. He comes as the owner of the house. 
And because he's the owner of the house, that means he has access to every single room of your life. He has control. He has lordship of every sphere of your life because he's not a guest. He's the one that owns the house. And I think sometimes we've got to allow that to come into our thinking that, Lord, you're not a guest, but you come into my life not as a guest, but you come to rearrange it. How many realize that? He comes to change everything around. Stuff in us that shouldn't be there, he's there, and he's re-changing, re-examining, redefining the way we live our lives. But the, but the issue is we've got to let him do. Is that true? We've got to say, Lord, come. Change the way that I think. Change the way I am. I realize there's things in me that shouldn't be the way they are. And so I'm inviting you to come in and to rearrange the spiritual furniture. Can you say amen? Now, look what he says here. He uses this word, and he uses this word. He speaks about casting down arguments. Now, it's quite interesting that this word arguments was actually a word they used in the Greek courts. Be interesting. All the Greek courts. The legal arguments they use in the Greek courts. And it was a word that was used that, that you, that when a, like I suppose, uh, when they were arguing, when they were debating, it would be the rules of debate. In other words, there were certain ways they argued a case. And this was the rules of debate. And one of the words they used, which is the same word, is the word diatribe. Which actually means that you get to the point in the, into a debate where you totally seek to crush your enemy. You know what I mean? You use cutting words that are so cutting, you totally destroy their arguments. You totally pull down their arguments. It, it actually means something, that, an argument, that is used point by point to dismantle. And that is how the enemy comes against us. By dismantling the way that we think. He tries to dismantle us and cause us to lose our confidence, causes us to, to lose our trust, causes us to lose our faith, causes us to, to, to have to, to be spiritually spiritually crippled. I want you to see that Satan is told he's the father of what lies. So everything he comes at you with, every argument he brings against you, comes as a lie. He comes to misrepresent the father of truth. And so we need to kind of recognize the arguments that he uses are there to dismantle us, to dismantle our faith, to dismantle our trust, to dismantle our confidence, to build up the strongholds that resist the ways and the purposes and the truth of God. Can you say amen? And so I want to just think about some of these kind of strongs. Remember, in all this... The goal is to be more like Jesus. That's the goal of it. And it's a stronghold that hinders us and prevents us from being more like Jesus. We want to be loving like Jesus. We want to have faith like Jesus. We want to have boldness like Jesus. And so a stronghold hinders the development of of Christ-likeness in us. And so the moment a stronghold is pulled down, the more like Jesus we become. And really that's what the enemy is about. He maybe can't stop you being saved, but he can stop you living like you're saved. 
And so that's what he comes through, to, to, to feed lies, to feed deceit, so that we actually hinder the process of becoming Christ-likeness. That's why the Bible says, it says, resist the devil and submit to God. So part of our development in Christ-likeness is to resist the thoughts of the enemy because those thoughts are there to stop you being like Jesus. And then say, God, I don't just resist because it's not just about resisting. The second thing is it's all about submitting. And part of your submitting is resisting what the enemy throws at you. Now listen to what he says. He says, taking every thought captive. Now the word captive actually is a military term. You can't be casual about this. You can't just be, well, I'll give or take. I'll, that lie, I'll just, you know, I'll, you know, I'll give or take it. You've got to be aggre- you've got to aggressively capture thoughts to the contrary to the will and purpose of God. You've got to aggressively say, I'm taking hold of that thought. That thought is not in agreement with God. That, that thought of fear doesn't come from God. That thought of unbelief doesn't come from God. And I'm taking that thought captive, aggressively resisting it and, and taking hold of it and submitting myself to God. Do you remember a few months ago, we had a, a lady from, uh, she was in the yellow police force, remember she was with us for a few months. I remember she tells, me, tells stories about when she used to arrest people. How many know that when she was in the LI, when she was in the Los Angeles police force, she didn't just come along to say to someone, said, would you mind putting your arms behind your back, please? Or, would you mind possibly stopping? I want to arrest you. No, they throw them on the floor, they put their arms behind their back, they put their knee in their back, whatever. They are aggressive when they take somebody captive. And really what the Bible is saying is that we have to be that way with the thoughts of the enemy. We aggressively resist it. We aggressively say, I'm not allowing that thought to have any acceptance in my mind. I'm not allowing that thought to have any hold of my life. I resist it. And I take it captive and I throw it down. And I forbid it to have any kind of influence in my life. Amen? Now here's the point. Have you heard this saying, you can't stop birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting. Not that I've got much to nesting, but... Is that right, Richard? <laughs> but here's the point. That the, the, the truth is that, that we, these thoughts are going to come. The issue is, is whether we allow those thoughts to be established and take a hold of our life. Because when I tell you, when those thoughts come, they come with certain things attached to them. Have you noticed a thought comes with, with sometimes a crippling fear, a, a, a something that paralyzes you, affects your emotions, affects the part of your being? Because thoughts don't just come as something that's passed by. They come connected to affect your emotions, to affect different parts of your being. And so the Bible says, refuse to allow those thoughts to take you captive. Can you say amen? And I want to look at maybe three strongholds and how that we pull down those strongholds. I think they're not not totally everything, but they are three major strongholds that actually have roots. In other words, they are a root that produces something else. John the Baptist says we're, we're... with allowing the axe to get to the what? Root. I think there's certain things that are fruits, but they're not roots. So you can pull the fruit off, but if you don't pull the root out, the fruit is going to keep on coming in your life. So we want to get to maybe the root of some things. And here's the first one. It may not seem obvious to many of us, but I think there's an incredible root of this. 
And it's self-hatred. A stronghold of self-hatred. Look at Matthew 22, verse 39. I don't know if you ever kind of got a hold of this verse, but it's interesting. Jesus says this, You shall love your neighbour, which we all say, Yes, give me grace, Lord. But notice what he says, You love your neighbour as how? As yourself. And so when, I, when Jesus talked about it, he's not talking about being selfish, he's not talking about being self-centred, he's talking about your appropriate value on yourself that God has. It's appropriating the value that God has on you. Seeing yourself really as God sees you. And here's the reality of a lot of people, really, the truth is this. I think a lot of people, really, when they, they look at themselves, they don't really like what they see. And often people have all kinds of beliefs about themselves, unresolved conflicts about who they are. And I think everything in life can be affected by how you see yourself. That feeling may be that you never feel you're going to amount to very much. Maybe you didn't have much success at school, so you never really feel that you're ever going to achieve anything in life. All these thoughts, the, the way you see yourself, you see yourself as a failure. You look at life and all you see is failure. Maybe you've had rejection in your life, and because of that rejection, you feel it's something about you. Or sometimes we feel ashamed of ourselves, a shame that's there. A feeling that you never quite match up to the person that deep down you know you should be. This awful sense. And you struggle with awful feelings about yourself. You always feel less. I remember when Amy got married, I was going to buy a suit. And I remember, you look at this and you see this wonderful guy who's a model in this suit. And you think, wow, that looks amazing. And how come when you try it on, it somehow doesn't look the, look the same. You think, that looks so great on that guy, but it doesn't quite look the same. You know, it hasn't got quite that same feeling that guy had. And, and often we're like that in life, in a sense, that we are living a life of never feeling we match up. Constantly comparing ourselves with others because we don't like who we are. Wishing we were kind of somebody else. Always speaking down about ourselves. Constantly beating ourselves up. Wishing we were somebody else. Always battling with the same things time and time again. Jesus says that the way you love others is the way you love yourself. And here's the point. I don't really love myself. The fact is I'm not really going to love anybody else. Isn't it true? If I don't forgive myself... The truth is, I'm probably never going to really forgive anybody else. If I don't accept myself, the truth is, I'm probably not going to accept anybody else. The way I see myself will affect the way I respond to everybody else. So we've got to learn to, and again, I'm not talking about being self-centered or selfish. I'm talking about accepting ourselves as God sees us. I think kind of self-hatred also will cause us to constantly judge others. You know why we'll always judge others? Because 
we think if I can find a weakness in somebody else, then that makes me feel about that makes me feel better about me. You know what I mean? But, that if, if I really think people are good and really people are doing well, then I, I don't feel good about that. But the more I can pull somebody else down, the more I can find fault with somebody else, then all that kind of makes me feel a little bit better about me. And so there's this life of comparisons. We compare ourselves to everybody else. And when anybody else is doing not good, then we feel, hey, I feel good, they're not doing well. But when anybody else is doing better than us, we don't feel quite so good. But the real issue is, there's this root of self-hatred within us. And so we want to expose everybody else's witness. It creates insecurity because self-hatred will always expect the worst. That's true. Because of the way you see yourself, you always think everything bad is always going to happen to you. And so you, there's never any expectation. There's always a sense that nothing is ever going to turn out good me. Almost it's like this anchor, this negative anchor that pulls you to your future and to your past. I believe often self-hatred is often connected to often addictive type behaviour. You know, a lot of addictions come as a result because people don't like them, don't like themselves. And the only way they can deal with the pain at the core of their being is to find something that gives them comfort, the comfort that kind of alleviates the pain they feel about themselves. And they say things, you know, you, I've talked to people literally on the real, real kind of, they've absolutely got a very destructive pathway of life. And they know they're going on this destructive pathway. And it's interesting, you'll say to them, you know, what are you doing? And they'll say things, well, who cares? I don't care. In other words, why should I care if nobody else cares? And it's and it's this self-destruct button, if you like, that's there. And they don't know why this self-destruction button's there. And it's there because of the way they see themselves. The self-hatred they have about them causes them to almost sabotage every good thing that happens in life. And we are glad that Jesus has got good news about that. And as I think a core key to dealing with that kind of stuff in our life, I think it afflicts many Christians. It's interesting, isn't it? You can tell how it's there in our lives because the moment someone says something, we interpret it a certain way. We think, that is a great sermon for somebody else. Amen. That, they really, I'm really glad they came there. They really needed to hear that. And so we interpret life through this kind of self hate We interpret things. We interpret what people say to us. We interpret people's reactions to us through this kind of lens of self-hatred. And the way we deal with it is to find out who we really are in Christ. Because the truth is, there's nothing good dwells in our flesh. Amen? And that's the truth. The truth is, our old nature is a terrible thing. How many glad that God has given you a brand new nature? Let me turn me to it again. A, a kind of known verse. 2 Corinthians 5, but we'll look at 2 Corinthians 4 to begin with. And 2 Corinthians 4, I want to see, you need 2 Corinthians, the last verse of 2 Corinthians 4 to understand 2 Corinthians 5, if that makes any sense. It says, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And verse 17 of chapter 5, therefore, 
Everyone knows if it's there, it's therefore because of what came before. <laughs> therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, how many things? All things have become new. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, in verse 18 of chapter 4, he's saying, there are things that we can't see. But what we can't see is more powerful than what we can see. The Bible says that faith is the evidence of things what? Not, not see. The Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. And so, to please God, I need to live and base my life on the things that I do not see. God dwells in the realm of faith. And faith is the realm of impossibilities. And the impossibilities that are released always take place to what we cannot see. But here's the amazing thing. What we cannot see is more real than what we can see. And what Paul, when Paul goes to 2 Corinthians, when he goes down to chapter 5, he's telling us about something we can't see. A new creation, you can't actually see that you are a new creation. It's something unseen. Something that the world can't see, but nevertheless, when you get born again, God has given you a brand new nature. You become a new creation. You become created in the likeness of Christ. We have the strength and the character of Jesus. But there's the issue. You have to believe it. You have to believe you have that new nature. Because if you don't believe it, you then become trapped in your old nature. You then become trapped in the old way of thinking. You then become trapped in the old way of living because you've never realised that you have been given a brand new nature, a brand new creation in Christ. And so when you look in the mirror, you say, Lord, today, thank you. I'm not going to be moved by what I see. Right? Thank you, Lord, today. I am a new creation. I've been given the power of the new nature of Christ. It's not based on how you feel. It's not based on what you see. It's based on what God says about you. And he's declared whether I feel it or whether I feel it not. Whether my experience lives up to it or, or not. The truth is, I am a brand new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Let me show you a verse. And I always kind of, I always kind of struggle with this verse. Because it seemed to be such a, a, a kind of challenging verse, if you like. Let me ask you this question. Don't need to put your hand up. Since you got saved, have you ever sinned? <laughs> I'm asking you to ask that. But since you got, have you, have you ever, the moment you got saved, did you ever sin since that day? I'm not asking you to put your hand up. I can see by your face is the answer. But look what it says in this verse. 1 John 5.18 We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. How does that make sense? I'll tell you it does. When you live in the power of your new nature, you're not going to sin. Why do we sin? Because we give way to the power of our old nature but the more I realise 
the power of my new nature, which is far greater than the power of my old nature, and I begin to live according to the identity that I have in Christ, it changes the whole concept of my life. I don't have to feel inferior. I don't have to feel insecure. I don't have to feel full of fear because of the new nature I have in Christ. The nature, that new nature is a righteous nature because we've been given the gift of we've been made righteous in Christ. In that new nature, it's a nature of love because we have the love of Christ in us. And greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. It's down to one thing alone, believing the new nature and creation that God has brought us into. Go down a little bit to that 2 Corinthians 5 again. Because I just want you to see some because... It says in verse 17, sorry, verse 18, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says that that, is a, that was God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, has not committed to us the, the, the words of reconciliation. See, on the cross, when did you get a hold of something on the cross? Jesus never just took your sins on the cross. Do you realize he took you? Because the Bible says you died with Christ. Your old nature was crucified. It was put to death. Jesus didn't just take your sins and your failure. He took you to the cross. And he nailed your old nature, your flesh, and put it to death. Put an end to it once and for all. And the Bible says, reckon yourself therefore dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that word reckon is... It's a, a, a term that's used for mathematics. How you reckon one on one, such as one is one is two, whatever. It's that kind of, it's a fact. It's already happened. When Jesus died, you died with him. The issue is, is whether you really believe it or not. Beck was saying, didn't she? That you only know a truth when that truth is challenged. And the enemy wants to challenge that truth in your life. Let's see if you're really dead. But you've got to say, I really have died to that sin. I've really died to that thing, that fear, I've died to it. That attitude, I've died to it. That, that kind of inferiority, I've died to it. It's dead, it's finished, put to death, finished once and for all. Really, that's what your baptism signified. That you died and rose to life. Newness of life in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on to say in that chapter, he says, we no longer look, after, we no longer look at men after the flesh, but we look after them after the, who they are in Christ. Listen, see yourself, not as you were in your past, in your failure, your disappointments, your discouragement. Don't look at yourself that way after the flesh. But look at yourself as you are in your new nature in Christ. And when you begin to realize that, it lifts you above that self-hatred. How can you not like somebody that has Christ, the Jesus life in you? We crucify the old nature and live the power of the new life. Okay, one more, very quickly. There's two more, but let me just quickly go to this other one. Go down to, to Numbers, the book of Numbers. There's a second, I think the second kind of, I think the second stronghold. Numbers 21, verse 16. I'm, I called it the, the stronghold of complaining. And I'm sure that's never been a, a problem at all with you. Or me. I'm sure we never, ever, ever have had an issue with this. Numbers 21. And that, it kind of looks a kind of nice verse to begin with. And 
I want you to see the kind of background. But Numbers 21 and verse 16. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. And now we are here in Kadesh, a, a city on the edge of your border. And that's, that's Numbers 20, not Numbers 21. And that's a nice verse of all. But Numbers 21, verse 16. I wonder what that one is. From there they went into Be- to Bia, which is well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, all you sing to it. The well the leaders sang, dug by the nation nobles, is a lawgiver with their staves. That seems a really happy verse. Lord, thank you, you gave us water. And they're rejoicing, it's wonderful. But I want you to see something. From, from Egypt to the Promised Land was a journey of how many long, how many, it was 11 days. That's how long it, would, it should have took. You know how long they took? They took 40 years. Can you imagine, sort of, I'm going on a 10-day trip, it's going to take me 40 years. I mean, what? I mean, that is kind of painful. And it wasn't so much because God had something, some prophetic thing about the number, although that obviously has great significance. The fact is, it took God 40 years to deal with the attitudes of their heart. It took 40 years to readjust their thinking, to readjust their attitude of their Because before that, they complained about everything. They complained about their food, they complained about when they didn't have water, they complained about the heat, they, compl- they complained about the, the, just a whole list of nothing but complaining, day in, day out. Often before they break through, you knew they were going to get a breakthrough before they break through, they would complain. And so there's this kind of attitude in them. This continual complaining about things in life. And God says, I don't want a people who are going to complain about everything. I don't want a people, I want a people who are going to trust me. I want a people, I want a, a, a generation, if you like, that's going to fully trust me and be a people of praise and trust. A people of thankfulness. And if I've got to take 40 years to do it, I'm going to do it. And they just went round. Same thing, 40 year cycles all the time. Same thing, until something broke. And it says, Lord, we give you thanks today for the water that you're going to bring. The whole attitude changed. And then God blessed and worked in their life. Now, I've got time, but if you look at two Corinthians, if you look at one Corinthians again, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, you know what? We should learn from the lessons of Israel. How many know that the best way to learn a lesson is from somebody else? Isn't it great to, to see somebody else make the mistake and so you don't have to do it? And so he said, listen, look at the mistakes Israel made. Don't make the same mistakes they made. And you'll see a whole list of things they did. And one of the major things on that list is complaining. He says, don't be like the children of Israel who continually complain about their life. And because of that, they fail to enter into the fullness and the blessings that God has for their life. So the key, not to do that, I think is simply this. To live a life of thanksgiving. Because that's the opposite to complaining. Let me show you a psalm. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. This is what God desired for the people. And in Psalm 50... Psalm 50, verse 14. It says, Offer to God thanksgiving. 
Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. He's saying, have a heart of thanksgiving. No matter if you're going through hardship, whether you're going through difficulties, whether you're going through trials, begin to thank me knowing that I will change the outcome to work for your good. And even though maybe you don't feel good, even though you feel in all kinds of situations, he says, you offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice means it's something that's going to cost you. And so when you praise him with a sense of sacrifice, God hears that and God responds to that and God blesses that kind of attitude. And here's the thing I found. That, but what's that about? Because look what it says, I think it's down in verse 22. It says that, now consider this, you who forgot God. How do you forget God? You forget God by complaining and moaning about your situation. That's how you forget God. How do you remember God? By thanking him. By saying, Lord, I know you are still there, I know you are still in control, and I'm still going to praise you because I know you're going to work in this situation. When we moan and complain, that means in a sense we are forgetting God himself. He says, don't forget God, remember him by causing you to have your perspective and your focus on him. And I love what he says in verse 23. Whoever offers the praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct to right, I will show him the salvation. What's he saying? He's saying, when every time you thank me, when there's tears falling down your eyes, and everything's falling apart around your life, but the moment you, de- you make a, a decision to praise him, to thank him, He says, that brings me honour. That brings me glory. The enemy wants you not to have your focus on God. And so, complaining takes takes your mind away from God. Thanking him realigns your focus. And now you're focused on him. Now you're looking at him. And God begins to work and move in those situations. Every time you thank him, you're bringing him into that situation. Every single time you praise him. Maybe at that moment you may not see any difference, but I guarantee at some point he's going to work, he's going to move. You think about this, what does strongholds really do actually? They cause you to lose things like joy. You can't really be bound by a stronghold and have joy. In fact, one of the evidences that that's having a grip on your life is because you've got no joy. There's no peace. There's a, a constant sense of feeling miserable within, within yourself. But when you praise him and thank him, somehow a joy rises up in your heart. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Time has gone. Let me just give, quickly give one more, and I'll, I'll just do this pretty quick. A stronghold of fear. I think that's a massive big one. How many know fear is not your friend? Fear can be something that governs us and controls us. It can be the fear of failure, fear of our future, fear of rejection, fear of losing control. All kinds of things can come as a result of fear. Isaiah 54 verse 14 says, You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. So here's, here's the thing, we think about it. When fear is controlling us, 
we feel an oppression. There's like an oppression there. That awful oppression that's over us. And what the Bible says, it says, I'm not going to fear because fear brings oppression. And if I don't fear, then there will be no oppression. But if I do fear, then often the, the characteristic, the atmosphere over me will be an atmosphere of oppression. So the Bible says, do not fear, for the Lord thy God is with you. And I think fear can be an incredible paralyzing thing. A sense of powerlessness. A stronghold of fear that can grip and hold people's lives. And the more you give yourself to fear, the more it kind of affects and damages your life. Really, fear, you know what fear comes from? It's believing and acting on the devil's lie. That's really where fear finds its roots. And so really we need to examine ourselves and say, have I got any fear? What am I afraid of? And why am I afraid of it? Ever thought about that? Really, when you look at it logically, there's probably no reason why you do feel afraid. Because often fear is unreasonable. Because it's a spirit behind it. Let me just kind of land it with this. Paul says, I've not give, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of what? Power. Love. And interesting enough, the third one is this, a sound mind. So how do I break a spirit of fear? How do I break a stronghold of fear? Simply this. First thing, by power. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll never conquer fear in my own ability and strength. And that word power is the word dunamis, which means the ability of God. I need the ability of God to defeat that fear. And he wants to endure you from power from on. A baptism of power. A have you noticed this, that when you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, fear kind of is driven out of you? And God fills us with power. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. So we're so saturated with the Spirit, fear has no entry point. So I'm saturated with the power of the Holy Spirit. And a good evidence that I'm not as filled with the Spirit as I should be is where fear has power and control. I've not given you a spirit of I've not given you a spirit of fear, but of, of of power and of love. I just begin to saturate myself with the knowledge I'm loved by God. That God loves me. And if God be for me, then who can be against me? What can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? And I'm just confident. I'm rooted and grounded in the love that God has for me. Perfect love, what does it do? It casts out. It drives fear out. So if I have fear, that means I've not really come to an awareness of the perfected love of God. And so God is perfecting us into a place of his love for us. Because the more we're perfected in love, then fear has no place to rule. So he's not giving me a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. I've got to learn to think the way Jesus thinks. I've got to learn to have the mind of Christ. I've got to allow my mind to be renewed and transformed. Because the more I begin to think the way God thinks, the more I allow his truth to get a hold of my heart. You shall know the truth, and the truth sets you free. As I begin to encounter, as I begin to allow truth to, to get a hold of my heart, and fear 
has no place in my life. Because it's not given me. It doesn't come from God. Is that true? How many don't want anything that doesn't come from God? Well, fear doesn't come from him. But instead, he gives you a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Isn't it true when fear gets hold of you, you don't think straight? Isn't that right? You think absolutely crazy things. You kind of misunderstand things. You misrepresent things. You missee things. It kind of gives you an ability to totally look at situations totally differently and wrongly because it kind of affects a way that you think and the way you perceive things. And so we want to think like Jesus. And I'll close this. Don't feel like Jesus thinks. He, he's given. They, they tell him there's, there's no way you can feed 5,000 people. And he's given a few loaves and a few fishes. How would you think about that? He doesn't think like we think. He thinks, great, that's enough. <laughs> Let's do a miracle. Because his concept is always looking in the realm of the miraculous. Because a, a renewed mind is able to see the perspective of God on that situation. That wonderful. And you're glad that you can have the mind of Christ and totally respond and, and be the way he is. Let's just stand, shall we? Let's come before him right now. Hallelujah. Hmm. Let's let the Holy Spirit come right now. Are there kind of any ways of thinking, any strongholds in our thinking right now? We say, you know what? That is a wrong way of thinking. I recognize that as a wrong way of thinking. I recognize, you know, I recognize the, the lie of that situation. I recognize it and I refuse right now to allow that any longer to have any influence over me and over my life. I take captive every thought. I bring it into obedience to Christ. I'm going to live in the power of His Spirit. I'm going to live knowing I'm loved by Him. I believe He's good. Even when good things don't happen, I still believe He's good. And I believe God is for me. Even when experience and situations seem contrary to that. And I'm going to constantly thank Him. I'm going to live a life of thanksgiving. And I'm going to recognize who I am. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, and the brand new has happened in me. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm no longer going to believe the lies of the enemy that tells me I'm useless, tells me I'm no good, tells me I'll I'll never achieve or do anything, that reminds me of my failure, that reminds me of of my past. Because as far as God is concerned, the blood of Jesus has cleansed me, and now I live in the presence of Jesus. Lord, we just come to you now and say, Lord Jesus, just come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, in this place we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Touch our hearts, touch our lives. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this free download from Delancey Elam Church. For more downloads, information, or to contact us, please visit our website at delanceelam.co.uk.